Thanks for tuning in. Adam Levecki here. I'm with Scott Persley. I'm excited to share one of my good friends with you. He's an older man, a man of wisdom, and uh, he's going to share some things that are going to encourage us in faith. And so I'm really excited to have Pastor Scott Persley, who's not only a senior pastor of Christ Fellowship, but he's also a psychologist and a man who deeply not only loves Jesus, but loves the body of Christ and has given his life to serve God's people and to care for God's people. So I'm excited to have him and to share him with you today. And so I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for your download. And um, anyway, Scott, tell us about yourself, kind of um, where you're coming from, what you do. Well, uh, I was uh, born in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm 61 years old. Um, I moved to New Jersey about uh, 30 years ago to be part of a a private counseling practice uh, located in Westfield. I practiced for a number of years in Montclair. And then um, I started a Bible study uh, at the request of a a consultant uh, to my practice, a nutritionist. And uh, unexpectedly, it kind of grew uh, and uh, began really uh, drawing young people. And uh, I planted a church in 1983 called Lamb of God Fellowship. And um, we were together for 25 years. And... um, I've just recently planted a new work in Cranford called Christ Fellowship. It's a house church. And um, it's kind of a young man's game, but God's, I guess he's got a sense of humor. He every once in a while likes to stick an old guy out there and show he can still get some use out of him. Uh, I know there's some precedence for this in the scripture, so I'm delighted. I'm really uh grateful for what God has me doing. I'm caring for a small group of about six, about 50 or 60 adults, and um, I'm, I'm blessed. Yeah. So I know you for some years. We met through a mutual friend, a guy named Steve S. Palmer, who used to be the, uh, the prayer pastor, rather, at Life Center in Harrisburg, and then we became friends. And uh, I've, I've learned quite a bit of things from you, but I, um, I remember you asked me probably three, four years ago, at least maybe four or five years ago, actually now, you asked me a question, and the question was this. You said, what is the most quoted scripture from the Old Testament in the New Testament? And as an itinerant preacher, I felt like a complete idiot. I had no idea, and I'm like, well, what is it? And then you said, it's Psalm 110.1, check it out. And that's all you did. That's all you said. And I feel for me that that was a transformational question because it put me on a journey that caused me to really challenge what I've been taught and what I previously believed. And so sometimes that's a little scary for some because they feel as if they're losing their way. But in actuality, I was actually finding my way and I was kind of muddling through what I had just accepted, but I didn't necessarily discover it on my own. I didn't work it out in scripture on my own. And so studying how Psalm 110 verse 1 was used by Christ, how it was used by Paul the Apostle, how frequently it was used, 
and how much that was woven into the fabric of the New Testament that really caused me to question uh, certain things about what I had believed about uh, the end times and what that even meant in Matthew 24. And uh, a lot of things begin to fold like a deck of cards as I went on that study. And so I didn't read any commentaries. I had just studied what actually the scripture was saying and how the scripture was actually being used and how it was woven into the narrative of the New Testament and the New Covenant. And what that did is it magnified Jesus and it, it showed me a bigger Jesus. And um, it also made sense of why the Holy Spirit was called the promise of the Father because the Father made a promise to his Son and it's through the promise of the Spirit that that promise is then actualized and manifested in the earth. And it seemed that God is really patient and long-suffering. And it gave me more of a long-term view on the gospel and in what God is doing. And so when someone asked me, you know, what is God doing? I'd say that God is making his enemies his footstool. And so um, how that plays out is, is always unique to different cultures and uh, in different times, but that's what the Spirit is doing. He's making uh, God's enemies his footstool. And so that really ratified a lot of things in my life. And uh, you know how young men are always in a hurry for everything, and it really challenged my view of the future. So I want to thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that you have a lot of experience uh, in pastoral care uh, as a psychologist, as a pastor, um, someone who truly loves people, and and so I know that you ask transformational questions, and so I I want to um, kind of jump into another question you had asked me. I remember was you asked me how do people change, and again I was kind of like you know well people sovereignly change by a miracle, uh, people have an encounter with the Lord. But then you brought me to the scripture and said, yeah, that does happen. But um, the disciples were with Jesus every day for three years and they still didn't kind of really get everything. And so most people change very, very slowly within the context of a community of people going in the same direction. So I want to turn this into asking you, what is the importance of community as it relates to people changing well <clears throat> take uh one of the richest books theologically in the in the new testament the book of ephesians we often would be inclined to think of romans as having the deepest theology but the but the truth of the matter is the first three chapters of ephesians are some of the densest deepest the theological truth we find in all of scripture and it's interesting uh you know it, it's so it's so uh, pregnant in Paul that he several times in those chapters breaks into these spontaneous prayers where he's specifically concerned about one thing. He's, he's concerned about, you know, the experience of the love of God as something more than just an, an idea, but as something that is foundational to the whole process of change in our lives and he you know he gets through you know these first several chapters and ends chapter three 
with uh, this this magnificent uh, prayer. Uh, let me see if I can call it up here. Uh, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is what the scriptures mean by change. To be, to, to have a, a, an experiential knowledge of the love of God that is changing your inward motivations. And as he presses that out in the, in the following chapters, he sort of says, okay, now I've just prayed these exalted prayers for your experiential knowledge of the love of Christ how does that actually get walked out in the real world? And, you know, that's, that's where we, we need to go a little deeper into Ephesians. And, you know, he begins by talking about, he says, I, 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 now I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, stop doing the same dumb things over and over again that produce the same dead-end results. You've got to put that life behind you, the life where you, uh, you you weren't really thoughtful about how you made decisions. You weren't really reflective upon your own inner motivations. You didn't think about why you were doing this or that or the other thing. You were more like a leaf floating down the river, just whatever happened, whatever you bumped into. And he's saying, that life is gone. That life is behind you. And he And he says... And I, I find this so compelling. The very first thing that this life is to produce, therefore, having put aside falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What is the relational transformation that is the context for this new life in Jesus to thrive? It's honest, transparent friendships where we are connected together with one another. We're, we're actually members of one another. You can't, you're talking about the most intimate kind of language. You are actually part of each other. And then he begins to address the, the kinds of things that are so significant to relate, like don't let anger, think about it's, it's almost impossible to think about one relational problem that you have in your life that doesn't somehow involve the misuse of anger. You're either angry at somebody or you're making someone angry and you're unaware of it. He's saying, don't, you've got to get control of that. That's, that's a relational issue. Um, let the thief steal no longer. Okay, translate that into our world. Are we, are we mainly concerned about thieves in our church? Yeah, they're called people who don't reciprocate. They don't understand that relationships require reciprocation. You got to give and take. You got to share. You got to die to yourself. You both got to die. 
what kind of relationships are, are, are we going to have in the body of Christ if it's all takers? In fact, that's when I look at the church, sometimes I think to myself, what are those people doing out there? Absorbing? This is the life that Jesus called us to. It's like a spectator sport. It's like going to a game or something. There's a bunch of people up on the stage and they're doing everything and nobody else gets to talk. Just those people up there. <laughs> I think that healthy Christian community means we, we talk to each other in ver- about mundane things, about the ordinary affairs of life. We talk about our marriages. We talk about our children. We, we, we look to lift each other's arms. I got, a, I got an email from a brother just the other day. He was telling me I'm, I'm, I'm despairing of life. My response was, I have one thing to offer you. Mm-hmm. Friendship. Hmm. I don't have magical powers. <laughs> I cannot make things appear out of uh, nothing. Yeah. But I can love you. Yeah. I can walk with you. I can sit with you. And, and I think that uh, this is what Jesus had in view. This is why Paul is writing this way, to make this life work, the kind of life that that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It requires a community of people actually aiming in the same direction Mm -hmm. and supporting each other, helping each other, walking together. Let me ask you, um, you know, as a a pastor, a young pastor, um, I've heard for years, even before I was a pastor, I don't need people. It's just me and Jesus. And people have been hurt. And so people respond to hurt and build walls. And those walls, many times they think are actually going to protect them. But what they actually wind up doing is isolating themselves. And then they're basically left out to dry. So can you speak to the whole idea of self-made, I don't need anyone... It's just me and Jesus. Like, is that a, is that American? Well, think, what is that? Think for a second. When people in in our culture think about depth, we're the last people they think of. When they think about Christians, they think about well, these are the people with the most superficial, most lightweight approaches to life. They don't think of us as people that are deeply reflective about life. They don't think of us as people that are, you know, the, 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 greatest, the, the greatest thinkers in the history of the world have always been very, very interested in this issue. Why do you do the things you do? A proverb says, the purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters, and the man of understanding draws them out. Now, I don't really know that many people that do that. First of all, that can even take criticism. Uh, I find human nature is instinctively defensive and inclined to rationalize. And in this respect, often Christians are no better. Uh, we uh, We don't want people in our business We don't want people knowing our private stuff. 
We can come, we can drive to church yelling and screaming in the car all the way there. But when we walk in, we'll flash, you know, a grin. Oh, yes, brother, great to see you. Um, this is this is not the kind of life that Jesus called us to live out together. Would you say that that that's hypocrisy? What, what is that? Is it is it just fear of if people know who I really am, they won't like me? Is it a little bit of that? A little bit of hypocrisy? What's your take on the plasticness well, of know, of that? You're you're really asking the question of motivation. Why? Do we do the things we do? Are we not inclined by nature to be self-protective, to be uh, concerned with the way we appear to others, with with the opinions folks hold of us, and we would like them to think that we're terrific or wonderful or whatever? And, you know, to dig in there and say, okay, I'm capable of some pretty, pretty rotten things. <laughs> And the truth of the matter is, I actually need eyes on my life all the time. Hmm. I'm, I really cannot be trusted to live my life the way Jesus wants me to without some occasional prompting from those around me. Often my wife or my children, they're, they're quite uh, uh, pointed in their critiques. They're quite discerning. And... Uh, I, I'm grateful for that. Uh, it, you know, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. What is the what is the cutting edge of your growth in holiness? It's how you're doing with others. Yeah, I'm, one of the things that we've got to understand as it relates to relationships is that iron sharpens iron, but never without friction. And a lot of times the friction of real meaningful relationships scares people off because a lot of times people are broken and damaged from sin through things that have happened to them, through things that haven't happened for them. And so when confrontation or conflict happens, they kind of pull back from that, not knowing that that's actually the thing that God will use to sharpen them. they think that it's going to hurt them, and so they many times pull back. Um, and uh, we can do that. When I say they, I mean us as humans. I, and I think it's something that we need to be cautious of because often the very thing that's going to grow us up and, and mature us are the things that we kind of pull back from. And sometimes we're pulling back from our own process of maturity and growth. Well, th- think, think about for a moment. Okay, think about in your own life, Adam, and, and I, I can certainly do the same in mine and perhaps our listeners. How many conversations does it take before you would call someone your friend? Yeah, I would say probably as, as what you said the other day, probably 20, 25. So you're talking about, okay, hours and hours of time just getting to know each other, getting a yeah. context... These things are necessary for growth and change as a Christian. I need people that love and care about my life enough to tell me hard things, and I have to have enough confidence in them. All of us were raised by sinners, some of us by some some folks that sort of messed us up. We're carrying around formation that's made us a, a little defective. And frankly, without 
the, the help of others, we're never going to break out of these patterns. Going to the altar, you, you can go to the altar every Sunday for the rest of your life, <laughs> and you will be stunned at how nothing seems to really be changing. I have these emotional experiences, but then there's no context in which I'm I'm learning the discipline of how do you... Let, let me give you a simple one. I heard, I've heard, I've been married 33 years. I'm going to give you all of the wisdom I possess, I possess about marriage after 33 years. I'm going to give you the key concept of concepts. Kindness. Kind speech. Day in and day out, it's the little edges that creep into your relationship that create the tensions. But if you're gentle and patient and loving, there's virtually nothing that relationship can't get through. Sounds like you're describing my wife. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure I was actually thinking I need help. of her as, I, <laughs> as you said that. Wow. Um, one of the things uh, that you do, which I think is amazing is you volunteer your time in Newark, New Jersey to help recovering drug addicts and, and help people um, get healthy, get whole, and become productive. And so as it relates to, again, um, the importance of community in, in how people change and if they really do change and if that change is sustainable, what do you say or what question do you ask to those guys as they look a very rough past in the face and they try to move forward in their life? Well, um, there's a couple of thoughts I have. One is I, I, I know statistically the, the vast majority of people that go through a rehab program, uh, they fail within the first six months of uh, upon leaving that, even long-term residential programs that last more than 30 days, up to a year. Uh, in fact, there's a very famous story about Eric Clapton in his uh, biography, autobiography. He had uh, been a kind of a notorious drug addict and alcoholic. He finally ended up at Hazleton for their 30-day program. He went through, he recovered, he got out, he maintained his sobriety for about a year, and then he fell and back into drug use, and he ended up going back to Hazleton, and he was in the program for 30 days, and on the, I think the last day of the program, he looked himself in the mirror, and he said, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be able to stay sober. Hmm. He fell to his knees in the room and he cried out to God please change me I know I cannot stay sober and wow. he did he did he's he's remained sober the rest of his life and and uh, credits that to uh, his uh, his heartfelt prayer but is that how most of us experience change now that was a remarkable miraculous moment in his life but is that how most of us as believers experience change? And the answer to that is no. The way most of us experience change is repetition, discipline, consistency, 
faith, of course, calling upon God, and not after you've already screwed up, but actually before you do it. Yeah. Learning to call upon the Lord and learning to 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 reach out to Him, and uh, to ask for help in the time that you need it, rather than after you've already blown it. Um, and one of the things that that it, the scriptures are clear on, we were not meant to live this kind of life alone. It just cannot be done. Um, the most the most certain way you can have of remaining just as rotten as you were when you first came to Christ is stay away from people. You you can be you can virtually guarantee. When people see you years later, they say, oh, geez, you're just like you used to be. <laughs> because the, the, the fact of the matter is it's that, it's that friction you referred to. It's those sparks. That is the, the, the ter- that's the terrain of my change. I learn how to love difficult people. I, I, in my difficulties, others learn how to love me. I learn how to to walk with someone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes change may take years. And I'm going to need someone walking with me the whole time. Yeah. There are lots of times I need my hand held. I really can't get across the street without getting hit by a car. I actually need somebody to hold my hand. Yeah. That's the nature of... I mean that's 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 why Jesus just prior to the, his the end of his earthly ministry told the disciples, "Hey, fellas, you don't have to call me master anymore. Call me friend. Hmm. What is it that we have to offer that no one else has? A love rooted in what Christ has done for us mm-hmm. that makes us capable of offering a kind of friendship a a kind of friendship that is costly, that says, I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. I mean, Adam, you know that most difficult commandment in all of Scripture. Husbands. Love your wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, that is our offering to the world. Yeah. We will lay down for the sake of others. Yeah. I need help doing that. What's interesting, too, is the greatest expression of love is not loving your enemies. It's actually loving your friends. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And uh, that's a very, very interesting take, because we would look at it and say, you know, it's the, the greatest love is, is loving people who don't love you. Um, but it seems that Jesus had another idea And it almost seems counterintuitive, but the more you give yourself to relationships, the more you realize that, here's three three safe assumptions I've learned. Things will take longer than you expected. Things will cost more than you anticipated. And people who you trust will let you down more than you thought. And just the fact that you trust them and the fact that they'll let you down many times often seems very painful. And so to continue to love through that and to continue to lay down your life for people 
who you feel maybe have disappointed you or maybe you feel haven't been there for you like they should or or whatever it may be, right? I, I find that it's just very interesting that the scripture is very clear on the greatest expression of love is that you lay down your life for people who who truly know you and for people who you truly know them. It's the proximate relationships that are the most difficult ones. Yes. It's the people that you see all the time. It's the people that you're rubbing shoulders with all the time. Those relationships, they they come up close to us. Mm-hmm. They see us. They hear things. Yeah. They observe. They yeah. have they have experiences of both your kindnesses and your yeah. neglect and yeah. and working through those things together mm-hmm. that's where the power of God really comes alive mm-hmm. when you begin to see the love of Christ transforming powers it's it's uh, it's up close mm-hmm. uh, it's it's easy to send a mission team to some foreign country for a week and behave put on a carnival or for the kids and give out candy and so on and so forth what really takes uh, work is standing in there with people week after week after week after week and walking with them and listening to them i've i've spent uh decades working with uh, marriages and you know i'm i'm you know, at 61, I'm seeing just the, the the complexity of change. Okay, to to go from a person whose inclination is to be rude or overbearing or difficult or disagreeable to being a sincere, gentle, loving, patient, kind person. Think about all that's involved in that. The, the, the multiple behaviors that have become your habits. Okay, you're, you're, you're challenged by someone close to you. Your instinct is to strike back, to yeah. argue, to, yeah. to, to defend yourself. Well, that's not what I meant or what, so on and so forth. To get to the point where your, your instinctive response is gentleness, self-reflection. Hmm. Tell me how the Christian life can be lived without reflection. Impossible. It can't be, unless you unless you want to live a brand that's extremely superficial. And, and the disciples knew that because out of all the things they asked Jesus, they didn't ask him, teach us how to preach, you know, teach us how to pray for the sick, teach it. He just said, teach us to pray. Out of out of all the things they could have asked Jesus to teach them. The one thing they asked him was to teach them how to pray, which allows us to see that they were aware of their need for God as it relates to how they relate to themselves and to one another and to the world at large. And it's interesting because even in Jesus' model of prayer, he doesn't teach them to pray, my Father in heaven. He teaches them to pray, our Father in heaven, which means that I approach God with an awareness of you. I approach God as more of a we than a me. And that affects how not only I approach God, but how I approach life. And and I think that that's a critical thing for us to understand because we live in a in a me culture 
instead of a we culture. And the narrative of the New Testament is written to we, not me. And so one of the one of the things that I explain about how culture is formed is a thought becomes a word. Rather, the thought um, becomes a, a rather a thought becomes a feeling. A feeling becomes a word. A word becomes an action. Actions uh, create habits, and habits shape culture. So when this starts in you know the renewing of your mind, and then your heart comes alive and then you actually agree with the truth in the realm of your feelings and the realm of your soul and that affects your speech your prayer um, your actions and then those actions become habits and then the culture of your life or family or church or community begins to shift based on what started as a thought a feeling a word an action a habit and then form forming culture i would say that that also assists people in the process of change where it actually starts on the inside not on the outside and you know jesus said to the religious people of his day that you guys are like whitewashed tombs you you take care of the outside but the inside you don't change and what's so powerful about the gospel is the gospel deals with our desires it transforms our desires uh, and it transforms our motives where the law was not able to transform our motives it was able to say, okay, your motives are wrong, but th- there is a, a deeper work of grace that actually transforms us from the inside out so that it's not that we just don't commit adultery. We don't look at a woman to lust. In other words, our the way we see and what we desire has been transformed based upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But how that gets worked out is in the context of community and people change slowly and people have to be committed to that consistent slow steady meaningful honest transparent relationships with people that they trust and this is a team sport not a spectator sport one of the one of the smartest things that uh, dallas willard ever said one of my favorite uh, writers Uh, is that the secret to the kingdom of heaven is learning how to ask. And so it begins with, obviously, learning how to ask God. Um, But it also involves learning how to ask each other, not demand, not resent because you didn't notice or you didn't pay attention, but learning how to be vulnerable enough to say, you know what, I'm not doing well. Could you pray for me? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I, need, I need you to come over here, put your hand on my shoulder, and ask Jesus to help me because I can't pray. I feel so weak and I feel so discouraged. Mm-hmm. If you can't say that, I promise you, you can't be helped. You know, it's very interesting. There's two core heart motives, right? You have humility, which recognizes your need. Help me. And then you have pride, where pride says, "I'm good. I I don't I, I don't I'm not hurting enough to tell you. Uh, my situation is not bad enough to come out about it." And what's interesting about humility is humility gives us access to grace, but pride 
makes our advocate our adversary. And God literally opposes the proud. And so here you have someone who is wanting to be your advocate, who's wanting to comfort you, who's wanting to send help. But if we isolate ourselves because of pride or because of fear, we cut ourselves off of the transforming power that grace makes the gospel real and available to us. Now, now think about think about the way most church services go. Okay, I, I, I'm not pointing out anybody in particular. I'm just saying in general. In general. How often would you expect to go into church, hear someone stand up and say, my wife and I are doing terrible. We're not getting along. Please, church, pray for us. I would say probably many of your listeners have never heard anything like that happen in church. Fair. Yet, the truth of the matter is, that should be the one place where it can happen where you know if I expose my brokenness in, to this group of people, they will immediately gather around me and cry out on my behalf. They will not go, oh, did you know so-and-so, sister so-and-so was had a crappy marriage or whatever? <laughs> no, they don't think that way because they know the truth of the matter is we're all broken. We're all dysfunctional. We all need Jesus. We, 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 are all, we were all raised with dysfunction, and it's still present in our lives. And, you know, in some cases it's life debilitating. In other cases you can cover it and, and get through pretty well. But the truth of the matter is if I want to see God change me, I've got to be willing to expose my brokenness and say to my brothers and sisters, I want to be in a church where I can be myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to be afraid to say, I'm, I'm weak today. You know, I think that many times people really don't actually, they really, really hunger for that, but yet they're also afraid of that. And I think our culture has produced more of a performance where church is more of a performance it's more of like a show or a play um, than a family. And with the breakdown of family in America as well, it kind of creates a vacuum where people, in a sense, want like a show, but deep inside they really want something more than that. And so it's interesting how the performance culture keeps everything superficial and actually hinders people from the true change the gospel actually promises and provides. Which is, by its very nature, interactive. It, it cannot be a bunch of people telling me things from the platform, and I'm not in, allowed to engage that in any way other than on cue, like, okay, now stand, sit down, pass the plate, whatever. These are my three <laughs> or four things I get to do in church. I can sing. I'm allowed to sing out of, but I couldn't possibly just stop the service and say, I'm falling apart. Yeah. It would be, I would be considered out of order. Sure. And that's, to me, yeah. think about what healthy family life is like. You know, I expect my children, when they're troubled about something, to call me. And they do. They they don't disappoint me. They, if they're if they're bothered by something, the first thing they think is, "I got to call my dad or my mother." Mm-hmm. That's normal. 
healthy, for healthy family life. You know, you want it to be a safe place. You don't want to, if I call my dad, he's going to yell at me for complaining or yeah. whatever. You'd like to, you'd like your church experience to be something where it's safe. It's safe to be vulnerable. It's mm-hmm. safe to, to if, 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 if I've just gone through the worst week at work I've had in years and I, I'm so upset and hurt and angry about what I've experienced, where else but the church should you go to share that? Yeah. It, it, and yet that isn't what people yeah. typically think of. What do you do when you go to church? Hey, brother, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Great. You know, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> when in actuality, they're, they're not actually good. So... Um, so give us some practical steps toward changing. Let's say someone's listening, they're hurting, uh, they're too busy, uh, they're indebted, emotionally they're worn down, their trust has been uh, destroyed by a parent or someone who's walked out on them, a leader that's hurt them, they're feeling vulnerable, where do they go from here? Okay, I mean... I say you start, you know, all the best things are built small from the ground up. So you start with one person. You say, okay, so you're you're a, a, a young man who says, I really need some accountability in my life. I really need some, I need some guidance. I need some direction. I need I need somebody I can bounce things off of. So you you, 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 you you think and pray and say, okay, is there anybody on the radar screen that I would be willing to approach? Mm-hmm. I'd say it's, again, the, the secret to the kingdom of heaven is asking. You want something? Go and ask for it. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes to me and says, would you help me? I can't say no. <laughs> now, if they come to me and they demand it, or they 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 tell me you need to be doing this, that's a different matter. The Lord told me you would. Yeah, but when <laughs> when somebody comes to, to to you and they sincerely say, "Look, I'm not doing well in my life," or or I'd like to do better, I'm not growing the way I think I should. I I'm not good about reading the scriptures. I'm not spending enough time praying. I really need somebody to coach me. Uh, I bet there's someone already in your life that could that could qualify for that. So I'd start there. I'd say, well, like, let me look on the playing field and see has G- has Jesus already deposited somebody in my life hmm. that if I just went to them and asked them, it could open up a whole new vista. That that's exactly how it happened for me. I was 27 years old in grad school. There was an older man that I knew of. He was uh, maybe in his late 40s. I really admired him. I went to him and I said, you know, Ray, um, would you take me under your wing? I need, I, need an, I need a mature, godly man speaking into my life. Yeah. 30 years I had that voice in my life. It saved me so many times from yeah. disaster yeah. and encouraged me when I was a young man I I I would not, not have had the opportunities that I had to teach and preach really all over the world had it not been for Ray's advocacy he would often say 
I'm, I'm a, I want you to do this next conference with me. I'd be like, what, me? And what encouragement? And isn't that, isn't that one of the things that, that pastors need to be just so skilled at is how to call out the good things in people? Yeah. How to give them the, the confidence to t- try things they wouldn't ordinarily try. Um, yeah. I just think, you know, uh, if, you, if you open your eyes and pay attention, things are going on around you all the time that you're missing. Yeah. You open your eyes and you say, Lord, I need this. What this guy's talking about, I need this in my life. Help me find it, Lord. Yeah. He will answer that prayer. Yeah. I promise you. And, and obviously, I believe in pastoral ministry. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for 35 years. Uh, I wouldn't be the least bit intimidated to just go to the pastor and say, look, I, wherever you're going to church, say, look, I need guidance in my life. I need some hands-on care. Yeah. And just say, is, is there somebody you could recommend or could you do it, pastor? Sure. Sure. Now, some pastors will say, well, that, that's not really my skill set. My response to that is, "What are you doing? In, what are you doing, calling yourself a pastor?" <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, I don't want to, uh, you know, disparage anybody. Just, just again, if you want it, you ask for it. You, you begin to seek it. You say, "Well, what is this guy talking about? I never heard of this before." Meeting with, I've, I've been meeting with men one on one for almost 30 years. Virtually every day there's someone yeah. different. And I've loved it. It's, been, it's what's made my, my ministry so rich and rewarding to me personally. I've seen up close, looking, yeah. you know. Face to face. Face to face. People going through sorrow, going through heartbreak, going through loss, going through success going through failure i mean go walking through all of those steps with other people this is the life that jesus has called us to yeah i appreciate your wisdom thank you if you guys are interested in more information about pastor scott and his church you can visit christfellowshipnj.org pastor scott pastors a house church in cranford new jersey and uh, it's a vibrant community of uh, authentic people growing closer to Christ and one another. So I encourage you to check that out if, if maybe a home church is something that you're interested in. And um, and so I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your download. I'd appreciate if you could rate and review and possibly share us on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social network it is that you do. So thanks again for your time. Pastor Scott, we appreciate you being with us today. Thanks again. Amen.